A good Nair of Shabbos to our friends and members of the West Mound Shul. The Rebbitzin and I are very grateful to all the heartfelt wishes on the engagement of our son Menachem to Malka freed from Lakewood and uh, Baruch Hashem, uh, we understand it was a beautiful Shabbos last Shabbos in Shul while I was away and the Rebbitzin world was away. This week, we're very happy to welcome Rabbi Avinom and Shani Horowitz, who will be speaking in Shul Shabbos morning. And therefore, I will not be giving the drush in Shul. So this will be the only drush you'll be able to hear. Um, in addition, uh, while I was in Lakewood, I was able to bring back a number of books that an anonymous donor purchased uh, in honor of Rabbi Wallerstein, Zichron Levracha. Uh, it's a book called, oh, It's All About Change. And stories and insights from Rabbi Zachariah Wallerstein, Zichron Levracha. And we'll be giving that out sometime to the entire shul between now and Shavuos. So I want to share with you one excerpt from that, and then we'll roll into our, our Torah. Here is the story. There's a man driving through the streets of New York City on a rainy night. He stops in front of a bus stop at a light, and there are three people at the bus stop. He looks around trying to make out uh, any bus in the near distance, but nothing stood out. So in other words, the bus is not coming so soon. Then he looked at the three people standing amidst a torrential downpour. Hamidi paused, blinked a few times, trying to make sure that what he was seeing was in fact reality. So standing there was a beautiful and charming girl accompanied by a man who once saved his wife. Next to them was an elderly lady who was shivering and coughing, clearly on the verge of dying. He then looked to his side and noticed there was only one empty seat available in his newly purchased two-seater Corvette. And he says to himself, what should I do? Whom should I save from the rain? Now, to add a little context, he knew that the beautiful girl was his bashert. And were he to pass up on this opportunity, he would never see her again. Yet, there was his friend who had saved his life. Would he overlook the kindness he had bestowed upon him and not be gracious. But with all this in mind, there's still the old woman who needed to be transported to the hospital this very minute. And if any more time would be wasted, she most likely would not make it. Now, this was a question posed to 400 applicants vying for the position in a law firm. Now think about this for a minute. Whom would you save and why? Now, just get to let you know, only one out of the 400 applicants came up with the right answer. All other 399 candidates didn't. So what should you do? Now, this is not merely a riddle, but you'll see shortly, we'll teach a profound lesson and we'll learn something about ourselves. Now, if you've heard this riddle already, then you're not such a big chacham to know the answer. But let us now begin with the Dvar Torah on the Parsha, and we'll see how we will connect that into the answer. 
We have two parshios this week. We have parshas Achrimos and Kedoshim. In parshas Kedoshim, after God <coughs> um, requires us to live as holy people, one of the mitzvahs says, do not make yourselves gods out of cast metal. Okay? Don't make an idol out of cast metal. Now, there's two obvious questions over here. Number one, how could any intelligent person believe that a piece of metal is God? Now, we could appreciate maybe how the ancient pagan societies may have attributed divine qualities to powerful forces of nature, like the zodiac signs, the sun, the moon, the wind, the fire, the water. But what kind of thoughtful human being could believe a god could be fashioned out of cast metal? And second question, even if we can explain how in the ancient pagan world such an idea could be taken seriously, how does this command in the Torah, which is a timeless blueprint for human life, apply to our lives today? So the answer to this is in a beautiful piece by the Meha Shiloach, by Reb Mordechai Yosef Leiner, who was a great Hasidic Rebbe from the school of thought of Ishbitz, who lived in the first half of the 19th century. And he says, the following, what is Masecha? What is the idea of Masecha? Ma- Masecha is when you're taking metal and you're, you know, ma- boiling it up, cooking it up in the furnace, you're casting the iron, so to speak. You're creating cast metal. Cast metal is very solid and is a fixed mold, cannot be bent, cannot be moved, It's sturdy, tough, and strong. And what the Torah is telling us is not to construct a God of a lifestyle and a weltenschang that is like cast metal, one that is cast and solidified in a fixed mold. What does this mean? Well, natural human tendency is to worship that which we have become comfortable with. It's subtle, but it's true. We worship our habits, patterns, attitudes, routines. Why? Because simply we're used to them and they're part of our lives. And we worship the culture, the perspectives, and the the emotions we've been raised with, which are the norms in our communities, schools, and homes. People love things that don't surprise them. We want to enjoy a God that suits our philosophical and emotional paradigms and comfort zones. And we tend to embrace the fixed and molten God. And this is true for religious or secular people, for believers or even self-proclaimed atheists or agnostics. There's a certain expression in our psyche that says, don't rock my boat. I've already established a God, so don't threaten it. I have my patterns of thought and my systems of life that I'm used to. Don't challenge it. And if you do, I'll have no choice but to dismiss you as either a heretic or a boor or whatever. 
Now, this is a trap that everybody can fall into. Sometimes a religious person, a firm person, has invested his entire life to constructing a particular image of God, of truth, and ultimate reality. And to let go of any of that could maybe be very painful. To even entertain the idea that my frumkite has been man-made, so to speak, could be too challenging for us. person says, you know, I learn Torah. I do that all day long, but I don't have time for chesed. Chesed's not my thing. Or people who say, chesed's my thing. I don't have a head for Torah. Whatever it is. Comes along the Torah and says, do not turn your pre-established mold into your God. Do not turn your habits your natural patterns of thought, fears, addictions, whatever, don't turn it into a God. Allow yourself to search for the truth, the real truth, the authentic truth, even if it's painful. Because life is all about challenge and it's not about conformity. And allow yourself to get excited about the mystery of life. And the worst thing a person can ever say is, this is the way I am. This is the way I do things. I cannot change. And never think that this is the worldview I'm comfortable with and any other way must be wrong. But we have to have a certain amount of courage to challenge every one of our instincts, any one of our temptations. We have to question why we do certain things. Now, certain things we're not going to, you know, we don't question why we keep Shabbos, but we could question how we keep Shabbos. That could be a good question. Of course you don't work. We can question a lot of things. You can question, is it really right to bring a cell phone into a shul? Ask yourself, well, everybody does it. I'm going to do it too. Is it really right? Ask yourself some difficult questions. Well, I'm used to this and that or whatever. And here's the real point. We just left Egypt a couple of weeks ago. And one of the most subtle forms of slavery is not just a slave to your mitos, but a slave to a particular pattern. Just because it's been that way you've done things for years or decades. But we have to understand Hashem, the real Hashem, is not defined by conventional understanding. And therefore also don't let your neshama be confined by that. And we should learn what freedom is from Hashem. Because often we, we, we fall prey to certain images of what our lives are supposed to look like, what our marriages are supposed to look like, what our children are supposed to look like, what our mission is supposed to look like. What if you have a child who's not cut out for, for a regular yeshiva Jewish education because he has certain uh, challenges? And you say, I can never have my son be a plumber. Maybe that's exactly what you mean. So there has to come a point in every person's life is they have to open themselves up to the possibility that maybe the purpose of my life is completely different than what I imagined and I need to stop asking what I want from Hashem and I have to start asking what Hashem wants for me. And although it could even be that maybe you've been doing the right pattern for a long time, really beautiful, but now life has changed. You're retired Whatever, person may be sick, person may have changed, moved to a different place, whatever it is. 
But maybe the new uh, part of your life requires painful change. <coughs> it's interesting. When you can do that, you will really be free. Judaism never, and we're talking, we're learning about the spheros now in one of our afternoon classes, and we'll hazard over on Shabbos. Yiddishkeit never articulated who God is and what God looks like. What it did teach us is what God does not look like. Because Hashem can never be defined by an image we can attribute to him by, by the instruments of our conscious or subconscious needs, fears, or aspirations. In Jewish philosophy, even forget about Kabbalah and Hasidus. We never speak about what God is, only what God is not. Or we do speak about what God does. But God is not an extension of me or my imagination. It's very interesting. That there's a Yiddish term for God. And it's been used by some of the greatest tzaddikim. And we call Hashem the Eibishter. What is the Eibishter or the Eibishter? What does that word mean? It means higher. Higher, up. We don't call him creator. We don't call him master. We don't call him all powerful, but we call him higher. And what's the idea behind this? Is we say, I do not know what Hashem is. All I know is that whatever my definition of truth and reality is, whatever my definition of Hashem, he is higher than all that. All I know is that I don't know. And therefore, the Torah in this week's Parsha is telling us that in order for us to be open to our relationship with Hashem and the Torah, it means that we're open to a never-ending mystery. There's always new possibilities. There are uh, profound ideas that we have to open ourselves up to. And what was a very holy idea in the past, maybe now could be a form of exile for us. And now maybe it's a trap and I have to get out of that. And we have to be able maybe to face certain fears that we have, which needs a lot of humility. But let's take it one step further in terms of what the Mei Shiloach adds. And the Mei Shiloach says that he says every pleasure in the world that comes to a person he has to realize, not all pleasures are bad, but he has to realize that there is something called nigia, partiality, bias. And you have to figure, if I'm doing something, is there a bias behind what I'm doing? And I have to really investigate it and put it under a microscopic lens. And I say, do I have perhaps have a bias why I do this? Maybe I do this every day because I'm comfortable and I'm afraid to do anything different. Maybe I'm afraid to go over to a new person that I see in the street and say, how are you? Welcome. Because I'm afraid they may yell at me. And I'm always afraid of other people. Or whatever that may be. But if you can go through the lens and say there is no bias at all, then we know, then that's clear that Hashem will want you to engage in this in the world. And he gives a beautiful example with Yirmiyahu Anavi, where after the Beis Hamidrash was destroyed, people asked him, there was a question, there were Jews living in Eretz Yisrael, 
There's a whole story of what's going on. I don't want to get into the, the, the details, but there was a question. Should they stay in Eretz Yisrael, basically is destroyed, or should they go to Egypt? And he said, listen to what Hashem says. Stay here. Don't worry. Although it looked very dangerous for them to stay in Egypt at the time, and to stay in Eretz Yisrael at the time. And then the Jews said something very interesting. They said, perhaps the person by the name of Baruch ben Nuria is seducing you to say this, which is shocking. Would you think that Jeremiah the prophet has been influenced by somebody else? We know that Yirmiyo read to them years before the destruction, Megillah Secha, they threw it in the fire, didn't want to hear it, and see it came true 100%. So why are they doubting him now? So says the Meishiloach, uh, they weren't doubting that he intentionally was trying to mislead him. But they were afraid that maybe he had a bias. They suspected that he loved Baruch ben Nuria, who was his Rebbe. And we know that prophecy only comes if you live in Eretz Yisrael. And perhaps he was biased by the fact he wanted them all to stay in Eretz Yisrael so his Rebbe could get Nevoah. And because of that great love, he figures when Hashem gives him the message, it was skewed by his skiba of wanting to hear that we should stay in Eretz Yisrael. Because even prophecy, you have to worry about any bias. Even if you're a wonderful tzaddik, you could come with a bias and misinterpret what Hashem is saying. We know, for example, when Yirmiyot was in jail before the base of English was destroyed, he had, a, he had a prophecy to buy a piece of land from his uncle. And he wasn't sure if that prophecy was true or not. Sure enough, a little while later, his uncle goes to him and offers to sell him a field. He says, oh, now I know that that prophecy was correct. And this is the idol of molten steel. Because steel is akshanus, is stubbornness to one way of thinking. And a person has to sort through everything he's involved with and remove all biases. And the truth is, hear me all himself. When he heard later on, he was so happy that when Hashem said, you should know that uh, Baruch Benira will never get a prophecy again, even if he stays in Eretz Yisrael, because if the Jews are in exile, the leader is like them, and he will no longer get a prophecy. He was so happy to realize that I was unbiased in my prophecy for us to stay. So what do we see? We see that even a prophet can be biased, has to suspect his bias, and that bias of what? Of looking at the world in a way that we feel comfortable with. And that is the greatest idol worship, but the most subtle and seductive that we aren't even aware that these things are happening. And certainly we all, as we're going through the Svira period, what is Svira all about? Every week we go through another Mida. We try to purify that Mida that attribute, and try to see, is there perhaps bias? We are now entering the fourth week, which is the attribute of Netzach. Netzach is the attribute literally of victory, but more specifically, consistency and perseverance. And it's a wonderful attribute to be consistent and to persevere until you get what you want. It's wonderful to get up early one day and have a geschmack davening 
and have a good davening with lots of kavana. It's amazing. It's amazing for a person to commit to do a kindness for a person in a one-off situation. Netzach is telling us that you don't just operate these beautiful meters once in a while. There's an idea of consistency. That's what Netzach is all about. Everything we've learned until now, kindness, control, um, compassion, they're all good. But they have to be consistent. You can't have a person saying, you know, I'll help you, but you're really asking a lot, and I'll do it this time, but don't ever ask me again. That person's missing that song. Person starts a Gemara Shir, or for example, we've just started Smichas Chaver program, and you come to the class, but to persevere, that takes a lot. Someone mentioned to me that just this past week, we celebrated our 17th year that we've been learning the Rambam. So interesting, we started 17 years ago, we almost had 50 people. Now we have seven consistent people because they have the meter of Netzach. Now you have to be careful, Netzach, we have to be careful. Oh, I'm consistent. And there is a virtue to being consistent, no question about it. Coming to davening every day is important. Learning Torah every day is important. Doing kindness every day is important. Greeting people with a smile every day is important. We have to be very careful. There's a fine line between consistency and habit. And the habit can be lifeless. But you say, oh, I'm consistent. I'm consistent in this area. But maybe the consistency needs to shift in another way. Because we have to start thinking differently. Maybe now that which I was so good in consistent, in being consistent years ago, but now it's time to change that and go into something that is going to be harder and I may fail and I may not be consistent and approach something brand new you never thought about before. You got to think out of the box and remove any of that bias. That's what a Kaddish is. A kadosh, a holy person, has to realize that kedusha has to have flexibility. Flexibility in knowing that the will of Hashem for you is always going to be up to Hashem and not to you. And what you're comfortable with, it may not be what Hashem feels is best for you. And therefore, get rid of your molten gods. Now let's come back to the question that only one person out of 400 applicants, knew the answer. Remember, there were three people. The one that will be the love of his wife will be his bashert, who will marry, that will make his whole life different. The person who saved his life. And finally, the sick elderly person. The answer is, get out of the car yourself, hand the keys to the man who saved your life, tell him to drive the old lady to the hospital, and you wait for the bus outside in the driving rain with your barshert. Now, if you never heard this before and you didn't come to this conclusion, there could be various reasons why, but quite likely it could be for the same reason while all the other 399 interviewees didn't either. Because in your mind, the man sitting in the car remained sitting in the car and said, I can only take one of them. 
So he says, who should I take? But if you could rewrite the script and think selflessly without any bias and outside the box, you quickly realize there's a much more effective way of solving your dilemma. If only the man sitting in the driver's seat would tell himself, I will get out of the car and get wet myself, but I will make everything else work, then you'll see everything else will indeed work. And that was the difference in that one applicant and everyone else. The man who got the job and the person who will think smart and be smart is the one who looks outside of themselves. So the answer is precisely with you. And the answer is precisely without you. That's the key to unlocking many closed doors in life. And that is the bias. The bias is, I have to stay in the car. Why? Once you say, I have to stay in the car, you're limiting yourself. But it's raining and I have a fancy car. Am I not entitled for that? Who says, if Hashem drove you by and gave you that car, maybe it's for that reason. Wow. A good riddle to tell at the table and I think we all are in to some extent or another in a comfortable car and it's really scary to get out of that car but if we really want to be the best people we can it's time to get out of the car get a little wet and help everyone including yourself have a wonderful Shabbos looking forward to seeing everybody and be well a good near of Shabbos